If you like the book Barbarians at the Gate, then you'll be more than intrigued with the Caesar's Palace coup, the book that chronicles the leverage buyout of Harris for more than $25 billion by Apollo and TPG, and then what happened after their investment was forced into bankruptcy. I'm thrilled to have on one of the co-authors on the show to talk about the book. His name is Max Firmus. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our chat with Max Firmus on the Caesars Palace coup is coming up next. Before we dived into the book with Max, I wanted to give a big shout out to his co-author, Sujit Indap. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Mark, and we really appreciate it. And, and of course, yes, I, uh, uh, my co-author, Sajid Indap with Financial Times, is an incredible financial journalist who used to be an investment banker uh, with whom I could not have written uh, the book that we wound up writing. Uh, and uh, uh, he continues to do great work for the FT. I just, I just finished the book two, two and a half weeks ago, and I'm still shaking my head how in the world – did the two of you even pull all of this together? I'm assuming the research took. It, did you guys spend a couple of years working on this book or, or more? Uh, yes, we uh, both in different capacities uh, covered parts of the story for our day jobs. And so that's how we you know, we're aware of how great of a story that it was and how we had barely scratched the surface. Uh, and so I, I in particular, uh, was, uh, uh, the head editor at a niche publication, uh, I, I co-founded a publication that focused on the minute coverage of distressed debt investing and corporate restructuring, uh, especially investing in, uh, companies that had gone bankrupt. Uh, and Caesars was one of, uh, the uh, marquee uh, situations that we followed uh, from especially the perspective of distressed debt investors. So I covered it like very minutely on a day-to-day basis um, along with uh, you know, several people at, at uh, our publication on, you know, for, for the better part of two years. And, uh, and then from, you know, from start to finish of, of the, you know, when we had the idea to write a book and we connected, it was about four years, uh, of, of work to, uh, to get it uh, done, even though a lot of that was, was a hurry up and wait. Uh, uh so it, it did, de- it definitely took a lot of time, uh, in, you know, covering it, uh, for our day jobs and then, uh, following up and trying to get the backstory uh, that we knew was there and you know, taking time off of work um, in order to do that, uh, 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 to really do justice to this story. First business book I ever read, I was working at KPMG in St. Louis, and one of my peers said, Mark, read this, you'll love it, Barbarians at the Gate. To this day, one of my favorite business books. There are a little similarities. On the other hand, Barbarians at the Gate is more about the getting the deal right and getting it structured, whereas this book is more about what happened after uh, a couple of uh, private equity firms came together and said, hey, let's let's throw some debt at this and take a company private. So there are some similarities and some non-similarities. Have I gotten that kind of right? Absolutely. You know, it's one of our inspirations, right? You know, you have Den of Thieves, you have Barbarians of the Gate, you have the smartest guys in the room. Uh, um, and, you know, like the, the the classic quintessential business books that go behind the scenes for these complicated transactions and gets 
the you know the person captures the personalities uh, behind these 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 mega deals that have shaped our corporate landscape in in one way or another. Uh, and we you know like Barbarians at the Gate was the you know the book that captured the private equity era and the uh, and, you know and the the LBO and um, you know the 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 rise of the private equity fund. Uh, and we wanted to do that for distressed debt investing uh, and the uh, you know the aggressiveness uh, and and kind of emergence of uh, the hedge funds as well as the private equity firms that uh, 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 that dominate this space, which is you know so um, so important to our corporate ecosystem, but that kind of flies under the radar. Uh, so definitely an inspiration uh, in terms of. It did for you know, private equity what we wanted to do for distressed debt investing and corporate restructuring. There are several CFOs I work with on a one-to-one basis. And one I was talking to this morning, he's now reading your book. And I said, there's a lot here. Here's how to think about this book. And I thought the way we might set this up, I don't want to give away too much because we do want to sell some books, Max. But I thought we look at this book before the bankruptcy, uh, maybe during or up to the bankruptcy and, and then after, J- just real a broad swipe. What was going on right before the bankruptcy? Maybe the landscape uh, goes all the way back to, uh, uh, it, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't Caesar's Palace at the time, it was Hera's right. Yeah. Uh, but let, let's go back then before the bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So the, the, the transaction that sets up this great story is, the 2008 LBO of uh, Harris at, at the time, uh, and uh, what led up to that that LBO, what was was you know it was really driven by the, the CEO of Harris at the time, Gary Loveman, uh, former uh, uh, Harvard Business School professor, uh, you know, an MIT a PhD from MIT uh, uh, in, in economics, and so. His his story was fascinating in that he came into Harris as as the CFO as his, you know his first job ever outside of academia uh, because he had done some consulting and taught some classes and uh, you know he he'd gotten uh, uh, you know he developed this great relationship with the CEO of Harris at the time uh, who recognized that the, you know and agreed with Loveman that there was this this uh, you know. All this data that these casinos were spitting off uh, that uh, that lent itself towards a more mathematic approach to marketing uh, that wasn't you know that wasn't being done, uh, and, and he thought that, that you know there were a lot of things that they could do by you know, targeting people with specific um, uh, 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 you know. Uh, uh, incentives, and so you know, he'd send some this person a free room, this person a free meal, what have you. Uh, so Gary Loveman really revolutionized casinos through the, what was called the Total Rewards Program at Harrah's, and it created this hub and spoke system uh, for the you know for what was just usually kind of like a regional casino operator to then start plugging in these acquisitions. Uh, and then every time they plugged in a new uh, casino, it would, you know, it, its revenue would spike compared to, uh, and its profits would spike compared to its competitors in that area because they had this great reward system that was you know, designed mathematically. And no, no one yeah. was, 
no one was doing that at the time, no. right? Yeah, I, you know, it's like, and it really is. It's like a t- like this this it's commonplace in every way, shape, and form. And you know, there were there were things that were set up where it, there was loyalty programs, but it wasn't it, you know it wasn't full on PhD math you know mathematics uh, uh, that were being applied. Uh, to you know this this commercial area, and then you know that seeing that success, like every casino does it now, lots of other companies will do it too, and that's that's the the rush for data uh, and the, and the usage of data in order to target people, and then I mean obviously we've got all social media that that has perfected it, uh, but really at the time there I, you know there was no. Uh, businesses besides the airlines that had, you know, that type. And that's how he, he kind of based it off some of the airlines, um, uh, uh, but that, that had, uh, that system in place. Uh, and it created this, this machine, uh, that was just, you know, gr- like growing, spitting off a lot of cash. Uh, and you know, because it was a casino and, and it didn't have, uh, uh, what Garrett, you know, at Loveman at the time thought was the, the public valuation of, of, you know, what he would have considered competitors. Uh, and that when that was frustrating. Uh, and so when he was approached about, uh, you know, a leverage buyout by, by TPG and Apollo, uh, independently, uh, um, you know, because they took a note of this at the time, private equity firms were just amassing these huge war chests in order to be able to, like, they could they could target anything at that point. Usually, it was some sort of underperforming company that they could they could buy and then turn around uh, at the, you know, the time that we're talking about in two thousand six uh, uh, when they they first noticed uh, Harris and approached Harris. Uh, 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 it, it was you know it was when private equity was raising these multi-billion dollar funds and they, and they could buy companies that were 20, you know, 25, 30 billion, uh, which was ultimately what the uh, Harris uh, uh, price tag was at the time, the LBO, which started in 2006. And because, you know, like the, the regulation didn't close until 2008. And I was going to say, the, when I went into this book, I had a little bit of a negative bias that this is going to reek, but actually the investment thesis, I mean, it was solid. The other dynamic, I don't know if you mentioned it, but the balance sheets, the balance sheet, the overall, there was not a lot of debt uh, at that time period when this started back in around 06, right? I mean, the balance sheet was relatively clean, right? This is the, and this was, you know, really um, why Caesars is such a, a a, a case study of max like maximum leverage and what what extreme leverage can do to a company uh but it, yes but c- at the time uh Harris was the, the the uh you know like an investment grade uh company <laughs> you know they didn't they didn't have uh, uh, uh any significant amount of debt whatsoever the lbo because of the price tag and because of the mathematics the, uh, you know apollo and, and, and tpg uh, uh, thought that look, w- this has enough cash flow that we can afford to pay the interest on twenty-five billion dollars in debt, and we'll and that's how we're going to get this this price tag, which was more than double of the, the price of the stock at the time, and uh, that you know we got approved by the board, uh, uh, you know, just uh, by this this in this this small but but still competitive bidding process that um, Ken Mullis had run for UBS at the time. And uh, uh, it levered it up. I mean, it levered it up so there was very little margin for error. Like the company had to continue to perform at that level that it was performing, and you know, very like 
some room for for a hiccup, uh, but not the Great Recession. And then the interest expense turned out to be about two to two point five billion annually. Did I get that number correct? I, that's, that's, at that's this point, I'm going to have to trust right? you. But yes, I, I, it, it you know it ultimately what it was it was the interest expense was in the billions after the after the buyout. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that would have been fine if they were, if they just kept the business stable or even, uh, you know, reduced EBITDA by, um, you know, by as much as I think 10, 15%. Um, but, uh, because of the great recession, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to you know, get too far ahead, but, but yeah, like the, 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 uh, the the LBO closed the beginning of 2008. You're talking at Lehman came towards the end of 2008, and and right. you know Obama's comments about you know fat cats going you know like Wall Street or like people going to Las Vegas uh, <laughs> uh, for conferences you know happened around the time. Even though I, it's just well known. I don't know how much of an impact that had. It, it was it was the, the casino business was hit. Las Vegas was hit super hard very shortly after. Uh, and uh, uh, immediately, um, uh, uh, Harris, which shortly thereafter, they, they made their official name Caesars uh, when they did one of these kind of liability management transactions, uh, 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 had to start maneuvering around and doing some debt exchanges at discounts uh, in order to uh, uh, try to create some runway and hopefully get through the recession. One of the industry issues they had to fight continually, I think, it, again, this I'm getting this out of the book, Atlantic City, my words, becoming a train wreck. You have all of these states who are now entering uh, legalized gaming as well. So anything that could have gone wrong to help Las Vegas get back on track, it was going to be a, a, a long time period. So they had to start jettisoning some assets, real estate. So that time period could not that could not have been easy for all of the principals involved. And, and that's that's probably a silly leading question, right? Well, it, you know, that's it's a great it, you know, it's a really important point to make too, right? Like so uh, uh, and, and, you know, you, you brought up Loveman Loveman's, he's like a very, he's like a very fascinating character in throughout this book, uh, who he, you know, he really, he really did uh, have, he was, he was a charismatic speaker and teacher and people loved going to his classes when he was a Harvard professor. Uh, and, you know, he, he was like very good at, at you know, like kind of like mobilizing an audience. And he even had produced this, uh, you know, this, this paper it was kind of his claim to fame uh, about, uh, uh, like, you know, the, the, uh, like the perfecting the service chain uh, 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 where it emphasizes customer service. And, and, you know, he wanted to bring a lot of these ideas to the fore as the CEO of the company, uh, you know, but when he did this take private transaction, all of a sudden, uh, you know, He's like being thrust into this mode of retrenchment and, uh, and and managing all these liabilities. That's when his skill set you know, kind of falters, and uh, and he's you know like a lot of this weighs heavily on him. And for this book, we you know we interviewed a lot of the, the uh, people who had worked at these casinos and and regional casino executives. Um, uh, and you know, this was a tough time, you know, and especially those who, uh, uh, were at Atlantic city and had to 
you know, close down a casino there, uh, like these decisions being made, uh, like we're, you know, from, uh, uh, like, you know, from elsewhere, uh, because Atlantic City really was, it was, it was a huge portion of, um, Caesar's EBITDA, uh, and, uh, it especially was hit in a way that was, was not cyclical. You know, it wasn't going to come back because, after the great you know recession started all all these states needed additional uh, you know revenue to come in so they provided gaming licenses to a bunch of casino, uh, casinos um uh, so Massachusetts Pennsylvania Connecticut uh all become all of a sudden like permanent competitors to Atlantic City and the Atlantic City casino business is decimated never to come back and you know it's like a third of uh, uh, of, of Caesar's EBITDA right there is, is impacted. And, and so that like this, this is an unpleasant time of having to, you know, pick winners and losers while at the same time try to deal with your balance sheet and, uh, um, you know, really just do damage control and not get to do all these fun, exciting, creative things that you, you thought would, would, uh, continue the revolutionizing of a business. If a finance student wants to learn bankruptcy, this may be the best book ever written in terms of a case study. Here, go look at this. And I have to confess, Max, I had to go back a few times, reread a few sections, but I I may oversimplify this, so correct me if, if needed. You've got your senior debt holders, senior bond holders, junior bond holders. So kind of three parties, if you will. There may be more, uh, but who, who who won and who lost uh, in, 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 in that process? Uh, um, uh, so yeah, that's exactly that. That's right. And let me just, like lay it down. Uh, like all, there's several tranches of debt here. And this is, this is a great example of uh, the different uh Creditor constituencies that you're going to have at a, you know at a, at a big company. So to start off with, just to get the transaction done, uh, uh, Caesar's had uh, it, it, you know two entities that were issuing debt. One was the Opco, one was the Propco, uh, and the Propco what they did was they you know, they bundled uh, properties in this and they did commercial uh, mortgage backed securities and they, so real estate financing because they could they could get more debt in that way um so this is a creative way to to kind of add to the leverage at a, a, a decent rate uh, and 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 then they had uh, just your uh, your your not normal but your your mix of loans and bonds uh, and in you know in in leveraged finance uh, you know loans are generally just, it, it, like uh, uh, more bespoke uh, like less liquid uh, uh, credit facilities that are uh, syndicated uh, uh, you know through banks and and uh, uh, you know generally uh, are you know, made you know, like invested in by a lot of CLOs, and then you have your high yield bonds, which have the standard indentures um, uh, that were there. And then on top of the the high yield bonds, uh, you know, there was there can be secured bonds, there can be unsecured bonds. In this case, there were you know there were first lien bonds, and then there were second lien bonds, and then there were unsecured bonds. 
and then there were also uh, uh, like these legacy investment grade bonds that were on the initial Harris company that they just, you know, they kept outstanding because they didn't need to refinance them. And those got subordinated. Uh, so you even had a mix of investment grade bonds that became, you know, some of the, the actually uh, uh, most subordinated of them. Uh, so that, that like that's how this all starts out. And uh, as we're heading towards 2015, uh, so between 2008 and you know, 2015, you have uh, all of the transactions that um, create the conflict in the bankruptcy that are fought over. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're broken down, uh, you know, into, uh, uh, you know, what we, I guess we describe in the book one is, is, is growth, which is the creation of a new entity to, uh, to, to move properties, to invest in them, uh, these creative names, uh, another is the, uh, 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 SERP financing, which is, you know, trying to deal with that, uh, prop code debt. Uh, the the next one was the four properties, which they moved four properties you know, into another uh, entity under the growth uh, that you know they thought were worthy of investment and capital uh, capital investment. And the last one was this big uh, uh, financing called the, like the B seven uh, transaction. And all these have their intricacies to them, but they're the main ones that are you know uh, go on to create. Uh, a lot of tension with the creditors. And these were all mainly orchestrated by Apollo. Apollo and TPG, they were kind of the, the co-investor private equity uh, firms. Uh, but Apollo, it, you know, they uh, have this culture that that was directly from, uh, you know, Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, uh, you know, the, the Mike Milken era, like Leon Black uh, was the, you know, was the main founder of it. And later, uh, Mark Rowan and Josh Harris uh, are given the two co-founder titles, even though they were pretty junior when they were, you know, first brought on to start this. This you know, what becomes a Goliath. They're known for very aggressive, creative uh, uh, financial uh, innovations and liability management, and so they're performing all of these different transactions. Uh, because they understand how, uh, you know, and they, they pay all our law firms and advisors to, to help them know how can we protect our investment and give ourselves a chance. They call it extending the runway, uh, creating optionality. And so they do all these maneuvers, which, you know, uh, uh, like uh, if they're allowed by the four corners of the, of the credit docs, then that's fine. Uh, and, you know, if it, if it winds up, you know, being one or two that maybe cross the line, then sometimes, you know, creditors will, will complain until they get a settlement, uh, you know, or they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll go along with it. But at this point, it was just, it was so aggressive. And, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, these transactions so compromised the creditors and, you know some of these transactions took billions of value away from the you know the creditors you know ultimately uh, uh at least you know it was thought and was was deemed to be so in a uh you know an independent examiner's report later on um that you know they really they really created a lot of controversy that would uh, ultimately be scrutinized in a bankruptcy so that that all happened between 2008 and 2015, 
And then finally in 2015 is when the company, uh, you know, that it, it filed for uh, chapter 11. Um, and it did so with, to answer your original question, uh, uh, it, you know, it did so with the cooperation of just one creditor group. And that was the first lien notes. Uh, right. So you had these three main groups that were in a position to negotiate with the company. One was the term loan group, and they had a slightly different, uh, 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 you know, agreement and security uh, uh, and covenants than the first lien bondholders who were senior to the second lien bondholders. And these three groups, you know, you'll see them uh, be kind of the main, you know, like the main groups that drive the case uh, uh, throughout the chapter 11. But in going and there are three of um, many, many creditor classes, like when you go in, ultimately you have, you know, there was an unsecured creditors committee uh, within that unsecured creditors committee. You have trade creditors, right? You had pensioners, you had uh, these, you know, these these notes called the senior guaranteed notes, um, uh, you know, that had their own types of guarantees. So you had a lot of different creditor groups, but these were the main ones because, uh, uh, they each had, you know, roughly, you know, five billion dollars or more across the term loans, the first lien notes, and the second lien notes, respectively. Uh, and so, going into bankruptcy with the agreement with just one group of creditors uh, um, turned out not to be enough, uh, and you know, they didn't get everyone else in line. And I was going to say we have a little bit of a David and Goliath story going on. We'll, we'll not give away how it ends. But I'll just say it's interesting what transpired. A little surprising, I, I found it. Uh, one quick question, speaking of bankruptcy, uh, do bankrupt attorneys, do they get a black eye? Uh, it's, is, is the image go up a little bit for bankruptcy attorneys, go down or stay the same? I, I've got, I got a certain firm that starts with K and then an E that comes to mind as I ask that question. I'm not going to say the name. Yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I think... Uh, it, it does. It depends on the uh, the law firm. Uh, you know, in this in this case, Kirkland Ellis is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. They are, you know, far and away the most active and successful, uh, uh, you know, uh, a law firm that advises in corporate structuring and bankruptcy. Uh, and they're they're the debtors' counsel to all you know to almost all of the. You know, Something like seventy-five percent of uh, of these you know, large bankruptcies, um, and uh, at least between them and, and Weil, and then you know a number of others. Uh, so they're and you know like that's that's the the cost of success is they're yeah they're going to be scrutinized. Um, but you know part of the way that they uh, became the you know the go-to law firm for a lot of these. Uh, bankruptcies is that they were very connected with private equity firms as well, uh, and uh, uh, you know we talk about it in our in our book. Uh, Jamie Sprayregan, who's the you know is the head of the corporate restructuring group at uh, at Kirkland Ellis, you know he, uh, he he was one of the driving forces that 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 really lifted the practice at Kirkland Ellis and made it so profitable. And the way that you do that is you have really good relationships with private equity firms that own over levered companies that file for bankruptcy or need to restructure. 
Uh, and you know, if you're doing that, you're going into a bankruptcy where the private equity sponsor is, you know, is going to be challenged. Uh, then, uh, you know, like the creditors are not like if it's relevant to them, they're going to point that out, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, and, and all almost all the all the law firms involved uh, in in corporate restructuring are, are going to a want and you know to you know be working with multiple different sides uh, of uh, of a bankruptcy across different situations. So you you can represent the owner of of one company uh, uh you know in one bankruptcy and then you can represent the creditors in a, in a you know in another bankruptcy. So it's 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 not uncommon uh but in this particular case uh the uh, uh, you know the I'd say probably the main uh lawyer that was uh, uh, fighting to get his group back into the money uh, uh, was you know a man by the name of Bruce Bennett for uh, he's the head of restructuring at Jones Day, much smaller practice uh, in in the bankruptcy world. Uh, you, you know he saw that Kirkland and Ellis came in; they're supposed to be representing the the debtor, uh, uh, and you know just doing what would be best for the you know the company itself. And not necessarily its private equity sponsors, and you know he 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 like he, he, he uh, like charged them. In this particular case, it was very interesting because he tried to disallow Kirkland's appointment as counsel to uh, the debtor, which is unheard of. <laughs> and there's a you know there's a whole hearing, and ultimately uh, the judge allowed Kirkland to be appointed. But in this little back and forth, it, it, you know there were there were you know charges of being uh, conflicted, uh, which were ultimately tossed out. Uh, but it was, you know, it was something that uh, I, I think it, you know, definitely made uh, 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 Kirkland uncomfortable. Uh, and, and, you know, like we, we, we interviewed a lot of people who, uh, you know, knew what was going on. And yeah, it was, it was just one of these things where it was like, you know, man, that's out, that's out of bounds. Like, you, you know, you shouldn't be, <laughs> you shouldn't be attacking us like that. Like you do this too. Uh, so, you know, that came up in this. Um, and it is, you know, it is something that continues to this day to be uh, uh, something to look at, right? Can you, you know, like are, there's almost always these conflicts of interests and can you uh, really ob objectively uh, uh, represent uh, the you know the main interests of a you know of a debtor if really you're beholden to its private equity sponsors uh, and in most cases you know like they get they get the sign off but it's really something interesting to look into um, especially right now like where you have uh, cases like Purdue Pharma um, uh, right like which is very controversial uh, and just got a, a, a you know just got a plan confirmed that uh, uh, gives releases to the owners, you know, the Sackler family, uh, that that don't allow you know any more civil lawsuits to to you know be filed against them because it's very you know it's like there's something that's very very controversial that that can happen in a bankruptcy uh, uh, that you know I, deserves to be looked at and in this case. Uh, you know, we we really, you know, we really uh, do go into the back and forth between the, main, the the debtors' council and then the creditors' councils, uh, and uh, and uh, you know another law firm, uh, uh, Paul Weiss, uh, who had been representing uh, uh, 
you know, Apollo in, in, and, you know, had been on a couple different sides of, of, of this transaction throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the book. I only have time for one more question. I have two more, but we'll just do one more. And this, I've say the hardest for last. So if you're, if, you, if you're speaking at, say, like talks at Google, and this may not be the right place, maybe, maybe at a, uh, at some MBA program, and you have a couple of students who say, hey, we want to be, uh, we want to be involved in activist investing. And, and the name that comes to mind to me, I don't know why, but Bill Ackman. After going through this story, writing, compiling this book, is maybe your mind maybe a little bit different? Would you have a different answer today than, say, five years ago before you started this book? What, what would you tell these students who are, I want to do exactly what uh, the Apollo guys are, are doing? What, what would you say to them? What, what's your advice? I'm curious. And I know that's a tough question. Yeah. Like I look as a, as a journalist who's, you know, career has, has mainly been in, in business journalism. I, you know, I, I generally don't, I, like, I, I don't think I have any great advice for people that want to go and be practitioners of this. Uh, but I, you know, I will, I will say that the, uh, like the activist role uh, was, you know, was something that I think was very interesting to look at through uh, the lens of this book. Uh, you know, we even talk about how, like, you know, one of the younger investors that uh, was part of um, Elliott Management, uh, who, you know, her her uh, like initial goal was to become an activist investor, and that's why she wanted to join Elliott, and then she just kind of got sucked on, sucked into. Uh, uh, this bankruptcy and this this restructuring and it wound up being fascinating for her and uh, you know and, and she, you know, very successful. Um, I, you know and 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 Elliot is well known for activist investing as well as distressed debt investing. Uh, and uh, you know the way that they do this, um, I, I I think it's you know it's interesting because I look at activist investing as as something. Uh, you know, like short selling, it can have a positive and transformative role, uh, but you just always have to put it in the context of uh, uh, what's the incentives, what are the underlying incentives. And so I did, I do notice is that activist investors will come out and be very hyperbolic <laughs> in, you know, in like it, it, to the degree of injustice that has been carried out against you name it. Right. And like this was a good word. That was a good word. Yeah. Like it it could be, it could be in, it could be in PG&E, right. You'll, you'll see a lot of activist investing coming out and saying, Oh, on behalf of the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the victims of the, of, 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 you know, PG&E and all like the burn victims and the people who lost their houses. And then the case in Purdue, um, uh, uh, I actually is not. It's that's less of a, uh, an activist investing thing. But there's another recent one, like R. R. Donnelly. Right? There's a uh, you know a, a, a hedge fund that's that's in the Caesars case uh, uh, that's that's just come out and, and written a public letter about how uh, you know the company has just extended this poison pill option, and that's actually against shareholder interests. But really, they're you know they're they're a much bigger debt holder than they are a shareholder, and so in the case of uh, uh, you know Caesars, you know uh, uh, Elliot had a a, a a big lawsuit drawn up to 
you know, uh, uh, you know, that was filed against, uh, uh, you know, Caesars and, uh, and Apollo and, and some of the executives in, in Delaware Chancery. Uh, uh, it, it was, you know, threatening to put the company uh, into uh, a, a, you know, like a, uh, a conservatorship. <laughs> Sorry, not, not conservative, but like basically threatening to take the hand, like the company away from uh, you know the private equity sponsors because of these these miscarriages of justice. And the, and the lawsuit was very very hyperbolic, and it was like this is a gross injustice that has been dealt. We're on the side of the angels here. Uh, and so you just have to recognize when they are um, exaggerating uh, versus, you know, when there is, you know, there's a kernel of truth to what they're trying to be, bring to light and, and maybe make a change. Uh, so I think it's, you know, it's always helpful. It's interesting as a career, as a career choice, you know, you just, I guess you got to know that you're going to have to kind of exaggerate that. And I hope that people do it responsibly and try to understand uh, that, you know, you got to keep in mind the different stakeholders here, because uh, if you're going to be doing something that winds up, you know, meaning that, that burn, you know, like uh, uh, the, you know, the victims of uh, the wildfires in California get less recovery, uh, then I, yeah, I, I mean, I think you should check yourself, right? I, I think you should, you know, uh, uh, you know, be mindful of of the most vulnerable stakeholders in these cases. Uh, and if you are at, right. And you want, want to become an active activist investor. I, I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because they definitely do. They make things move. They make boards uncomfortable. They make them do things that they might not do otherwise. Um, and so I, I would, you know, I, I would, I would only add uh, those thoughts to, uh, uh, to anybody asking about that type of uh, 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 job. Max, great book. We're going to be talking about this book 20, 30, 40 years from now, just like Barbarians of the Gate. I think it's now about 40 years old, and this book will stand the test of time. So very well done on what you've created, you and your co-author. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I, we hope so. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Again, the book is The Caesar's Palace Coup. Also a quick shout out to the other author, Sujit Indap. We mentioned him earlier in the show. And if you have some time and want some more background material, do a YouTube search on Gary Lubman. The guy is sharp, knows marketing. He's articulate, can certainly build a team around him. But the book also reminded me there is a big difference between peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs. And Gary, certainly the former, not the latter. And we need to call this a wrap. If you like the show, please tell a peer, leave a rating wherever you listen to the show. And we'll see you next time. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.